year ago in October, we did a series on 1 Corinthians called To the Church. You can still access those messages online. And so this October, we're starting To the Church Part 2, which is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. And anytime we start to dig really deep into a book of the Bible, there's a few things we need to consider before we really dive in. Um, the Bible is not just one like textbook where you just start at the beginning and go to the end. It's a collection of books. It's a collection of 66 books. And the books have different purposes. They were written by different people at different times. So it's important that we know what we're getting into here. Uh, so the book of 2 Corinthians was a follow-up to the church in Corinth from 1 Corinthians, part 2. Uh, it was written by the Apostle Paul. They estimate that it was written between 53 and 54 AD. And it was written as a, as a letter to the Corinthian church. The amazing thing about scripture is that Paul wrote a letter. It's like a real letter. It's like, dear church in Corinth, how are you? And the end is like, cordialement, Paul. <laughs> Love Paul, you know. Um, so it's like a real letter that he wrote for the intention of the Corinthian church to read it. But 2 Timothy tells us that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correction and for teaching and for us learning how to become followers of Jesus. So even though this letter was intended for the Corinthians, we still pull truth out of this letter today because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit so there's a couple of things we need to understand about the people of Corinth in order to understand Paul's intent in writing to them. And some of this we covered last year. But the people in Corinth, they highly valued education and they valued enlightenment. Enlightenment was like trying to achieve this spiritual state of being. And a lot of them were seeking it outside of the church, outside of the Holy Spirit. And Paul was trying to correct that. But uh, in the Corinthian society, people had the opportunity to attain social status. Corinth was a new city. It was an exciting place to live. And it was a place where anybody could make a way for themselves. And so you had people who maybe previously were low status. And all of a sudden, they have the opportunity to achieve social status. And some of the Corinthian people looked at the church. And they were like, oh. The church, that's my path to receiving status and honor. I can be like a big fish in a small pond in the church. If I have a lot of money or if I have a lot of social status, everyone else in the church will think that I'm important. And Paul, of course, had to correct this, and he does so throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. But uh, in this letter, like in 1 Corinthians, Paul has to address some conflict in the church. Paul has to address some things that the church was mistakenly believing. And uh, Paul was not afraid of conflict. I think there's kind of like two types of people in the world. There's people who avoid conflict, and there's people who love confrontation. And Paul was like ready to confront people. Uh, but he didn't do it just because he liked to pick a fight. He did it because the gospel was at stake. I mean, this was very soon after Jesus had come and had dwelled on the earth and had ascended back to heaven. Now we're in this point where the church is being birthed. The church is in its first generation. And Paul's like, guys, we got to get this right. we got to build a strong foundation so the people coming behind us will have a knowledge of who Jesus is and what the gospel is about. So he, he starts confronting people with truth and course correcting as the church was in its early stages. And Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, which is where we're going to pick up today, he opens up and he's like, hey guys, 
we haven't talked in a while, and he kind of says where he's been. He says, I've been going through Asia. I almost died a couple times. Paul says things are getting more difficult for him as a messenger of the gospel. And then in verse 15, he starts the passage that we're going to look at today. But the Corinthian church was a little bit upset with Paul because he was supposed to visit them. He was supposed to come and visit them. And in his, in his uh, path to visit the Corinthian church, you have to imagine the pastor of that church saying, oh, guys, we're going to have a guest speaker in a couple weeks, and it's going to be the Apostle Paul, and he's going to teach a master class on evangelism. It's, the whole church is so exciting that their friend, their pastor, Paul, is coming back. And then Paul writes them a letter and says, guys, I'm really sorry. I'm not going to be able to make it kind of been rerouted. So they were very disappointed, and this is where Paul, Paul starts off. And what Paul understood was that this misunderstanding between him and the church, it wasn't just a personal conflict. It had to do with people's understanding of the faithfulness of God. And so Paul starts off in this passage, and he wants to let the church know, and I want to let you know today, God's faithfulness is not discredited by my disappointment. God's faithfulness is not discredited by my disappointment. Paul starts here in verse 15. Paul says, uh, Paul says, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? He's saying, do you think I made these plans lightly? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath, I say both, oh, yes, yes, and also no, no. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. See, the Corinthian church had had their feelings hurt by Paul. He said he was coming to visit, and then he didn't show up. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a position where you had to make a choice, and you knew that whichever way you chose, someone was going to be disappointed in you. Maybe your team at work calls, and they say, oh, we're in crisis mode. we got to get the project done tonight. Something went wrong. we got to have you in the office tonight. But like you promised your kid you were going to take them to the movies, and you know that either way it goes, you're going to end up really disappointing someone. Or maybe you've planned a really nice dinner with your spouse and you've been really looking forward to it. And then the day of the dinner, your best friend calls and they're just facing a real crisis and they really, really need you. You're going to have to disappoint somebody. Somebody's not going to be very happy with you. And the truth is sometimes we're in, a, we're in a position where no matter what decision we make, somebody's going to be unhappy with us. We have moments where life happens and an unavoidable conflict presents itself and we find our plans changed and we let somebody down. So Paul tells the church that he didn't make this decision lightly. It's not that he didn't care about them. His plans just changed. He did his best, but life happens and his plans changed. But Paul understood how important this was because Paul understood that when we experience disappointment, it can disrupt our belief in God's faithfulness. When people fail us, it can disrupt our belief that God is faithful. And even worse than people failing us is when people who love and serve God fail us and disappoint us. That can sometimes warp what we believe about God's faithfulness. And sometimes it seems like God himself has disappointed us. Sometimes we pray and we ask God to come through 
and God doesn't seem to come through and we become so disappointed with God that we cease to believe in God's faithfulness. It's a real challenge and a real moment of growth to believe that God is in control of his plans for my life even when I don't understand them. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, he says this about prayer. He says, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knew. See, sometimes we believe about prayer that God will give me what I want. If I pray hard enough, God will give me what I want. But Tim Keller says, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything that he knew. The truth is that God has a lot of information that we don't have access to. In the last couple of weeks, we've had our guest speakers in for our faith and work uh, conference. And one of my favorite things about hosting friends from the US is driving them around Paris because they get really freaked out. I think we have a picture of Paris traffic. I don't know how many of you drive in Paris, but, uh, but I, I drive, I have, I have a car and I drive and I get my friends from the airport. And my favorite thing is when someone gets in the car from the airport, they're jet lagged, and uh, I'm just driving along, talking, telling them about the church, telling them about life in France, and they just kind of keep like flinching and turning away from the passenger door. And uh, I pulled up, I had, I had Bill in the car with me, and I pulled up at a stoplight, and I'm just talking, and he's like, hey, that bus is really close, that bus is really close to you. And it was like this far away, so I mean, I had plenty of room, you know. I mean, you, you probably couldn't have squeezed a person through it, but I, I felt, I had plenty of room, you know, and I was like, oh, that bus is so far away from us. And Bill's like, this is how I die, you know, this bus is going to come through. I've driven cars of uh, American teenagers through Paris and had them all screaming in the back seat because they were like, we're about to meet Jesus. This bus is going to come through the back door. Uh, And then you have the thing where you're like driving in traffic and you're talking to your passenger and then you start like squeezing over and they're like, there's there's a car in the lane. There's a car in the lane. There's a car in the lane. You're like, be chill, man. I got it. And then an ambulance comes like flying down the middle of the lanes and all the scooters are coming after the ambulance. And the whole time, you're, I can tell that these passengers are just holding themselves back. They want so bad to be like, oh, did, 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 did you see that turn? Uh, why are you stopping in the middle of the road? I, I can tell that they want to take over, but I know how to drive in Paris. I've lived in Paris for 10 years. I got my French driver's license. Your pastor got a 40 out of 40 on the French driving code, okay? Bless the Lord, oh my soul. I got a perfect score on my practical exam. I know about priority to the right. I know about the little crosswalks when there's no signs and the little pedestrians with their strollers will just walk right out in front of you, you know? I know about all this. My passengers don't know any of that kind of stuff, but they only know what their experience allows them to know, and they have to put their lives in my hands and somehow trust that maybe there's information they don't have access to. Sometimes when I'm trying to trust God and I'm in that passenger seat, it's really hard to believe that God knows things that I don't know. But Romans chapter 28, verse 28 says that God is working all things for my good. Disappointment and suffering in our lives does not discredit the faithfulness of God. It proves it. Paul was an expert on the faithfulness of God. Paul didn't know the faithfulness of God from the platform. Paul knew it in the prison cell. 
Paul understood the constancy of God's presence in the middle of his suffering. He said this to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 4. Paul said, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in one, whether God answered my prayers or whether he didn't, whether God healed my body or whether he didn't, whether God provided for me the way I needed to or whether he didn't. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul says, what gives me the sustenance to keep going is Christ. It's not my situation. The promises of God do not find their fulfillment in our circumstances. They find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to show us that God's faithfulness is made evident in the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 19, Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 1.19. Paul says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, he was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Paul says, hey, we might have had to change our plans. Something unexpected might have happened, but we can still trust that the plans of God are firm. Even when our plans change, when things don't work out like we thought they should, the plans of God are firm. If I don't receive the healing in my body that I asked God for, it doesn't change the healing power of Christ. If I don't receive victory over that thing I've been struggling with, it doesn't change the fact that victory is found in Christ because it's not in my circumstance, it's in Christ that the promises of God are fulfilled. Christ is the resurrection. Christ is the way out of the grave. Christ is our provision. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. No one can find God apart from Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of the plans and the promises of God. You know, the most offensive thing about Christianity, the most offensive thing about Christianity is we dare to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father. He's the only way. I will never stand up here and say, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and we'll all just piddle along until we see who's right. No, I'm staking my life on Jesus Christ being the only way to God the Father. Because Jesus said, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an offensive message. How dare we say that Jesus Christ, that our way is the only way? We put our trust in Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of the plans and the promises of God. And without Jesus, the whole thing falls apart. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, Paul writes, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory. Where? In Christ Jesus. The riches of God are found in Jesus Christ. The truth of God is found in Jesus Christ. The character of God is revealed through Jesus Christ. And the promises of God are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Our anchor in God's faithfulness is not in our day-to-day situations, but in the person of Jesus 
and the story that God has been writing since the beginning of creation. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the story of the fall of man. And as God is banishing Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, he says, wait, 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 you serpent, come here. He says, one of these days, the offspring of the woman will crush your head, and it's going to be over for you. Jesus is the offspring of the woman, and through Jesus, we have victory over sin. In Exodus chapter 19, Moses goes up the mountain, and God says, come here, Moses, look at these people. I'm going to make them into a priesthood and a holy nation. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, through Christ, we are the royal priesthood. We are the holy nation that God had determined for the world. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises King David that from his offspring will come an everlasting kingdom. Jesus was called the son of David. Jesus was the offspring, and through him, the everlasting covenant is established. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah gives a word to the Israelites who are in exile, and he said, you won't be oppressed and in exile forever, because there's one coming, and he will be pierced for your transgressions. He'll be crushed for your iniquities, and the Lord will lay on him your sins. No matter how many promises God has made, they find their yes in the person of Jesus Christ. See, sin doesn't have the last word. Death doesn't have the last word. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus doesn't have the last word. Jesus is the word. And the word became flesh and came to dwell among us. And that word was the yes to every promise that God has made. Paul tells the Corinthian church that we can trust the promises of God because they've already been fulfilled in the person of Christ Jesus. So far, up to this point, October 6, 2019, every promise God has made so far has been fulfilled in the promise of Jesus. Paul goes on in this passage because Paul hasn't forgotten the connection that people are making to the faithfulness of God through his own activity. And Paul also tells them that God's faithfulness is illustrated through his people. God's faithfulness to us is illustrated through his people. (coughs) Paul says in verse 20, he says, through him... Through Christ, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. All of God's promises are yes and amen. They find their yes in Christ, and the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. Paul says, I am evidence of God's faithfulness to you. I'm evidence of it. Paul says that our lives lived in obedience to God and in service to one another are the amen to the promises of God. Amen is a word from Hebrew that basically just means, so be it. So be it. So if you're new to church world, and sometimes when I preach, you hear someone say, amen, amen. What they're saying is, I agree with what she said, and I want that thing to happen. So if I say, for example, Christ, Christ died so that our bodies could be healed, and someone says, amen, like up in the back corner, maybe that person is believing in healing for their own body. And they're saying, amen, so be it. I'm healed in the name of Jesus. Maybe they're believing for someone else to be healed. or Maybe they're just really happy that healing's available to us. But what amen means is we're saying, so be it. I agree with that. There was a pastor I had um, years ago, and when we, we would pray before the service, and he would constantly be saying, do it, God. Do it, God. So we'd say, like, oh, God, speak to the people today. And he'd say, yeah, do it, God. That's what amen means. Yeah, do that thing, God. 
So when we say, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. What we're saying is that in Jesus' name we're committing to God everything we've asked for, so be it. We're committing to God everything we've asked for in the name of Jesus, do it, God. That's what the amen is. And Paul is saying that we are, we are the amen, we are the expression of God's promises in our world today. He demonstrates to us here, first of all, that when we are spiritually leading other people, our behavior is a reflection of God's faithfulness. So we better lead people with great care. We better better be people that other people can trust. Gordon Fee said this. He said, the gospel itself is at stake if its messengers are not themselves trustworthy. Paul demonstrates that as believers, we are to do our very best to be true to our word because the gospel is at stake. Mm -hmm. And he says, look, this doesn't happen through our own strength. He says it right there in verse 21. He says, it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. It is God who makes us stand firm. It's not our own efforts. It's not our own good behavior. It's the power of God that gives us the ability to endure. Paul says, look, don't give up on community. Don't give up on church because healing happens in community. Paul ends this section by telling the Corinthians and now telling us that God's faithfulness will be fulfilled in the resurrection. God's faithfulness will be fulfilled in the resurrection. He goes on in verse 21 and says, God anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God anointed us. In the Old Testament, if someone was called to be a king or a priest, they would be anointed by a messenger of God as a sign to everyone that they had been called by God to serve. We have been anointed as ministers of God. And then it says, God set his seal of ownership upon us. You know, when you become a follower of Jesus, God sets his seal of ownership upon you. God is proud for everybody to know that you belong to him. Sometimes we walk around like we're beggars in the kingdom of God. You know, like, oh, oh Lord, I know, I know that I don't deserve, I know I don't deserve this, but here I am again. If I could just squeeze in a couple words. God doesn't see you as a beggar. God sees you as a son or a daughter. You have full access to the throne room of God because you're his kid. You're his child. He's set his seal of ownership upon you. He's proud for everyone to know that you're his, and he's not going to give up on you. And God put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God's spirit in us is a deposit. It's a guarantee that the resurrection will be full communion with God. When we sense the presence of God in worship, when we sense the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day lives, it's a deposit that guarantees that we will someday have full communion with God in the resurrection. It's like God saying, hey, there's more where that came from. There's more where that came from. Probably the best example uh, in our day-to-day lives in our modern world is the idea of an engagement ring. When somebody's given an engagement ring, it doesn't mean that they're already married, but it means they're on track to fulfill a covenant to one another. Jay Brown, who used to be uh, on the staff here, Jay was telling me the story of his engagement to his wife, Celeste, and he said, I bought her the biggest ring I could afford because I wanted other guys to be able to see it from a mile away so they would know she was off the market, you know? 
They didn't go that day to get married, but it was a sign of the covenant that was yet to come. It was a sign of an unfulfilled covenant. The truth is that on days that it's hard to believe in all this Christianity stuff, on days it's hard to believe, on days it's hard to trust God, we have the Holy Spirit in us as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. We have the Holy Spirit testifying to the life of Christ in us. On days that I deal with doubt, there are days, guys, there are days I deal with doubt. There are days I think to myself, man, why are we doing all of this? What's the point of all of this? The Holy Spirit is there to remind me of the truth of Christ and the hope of the resurrection. Eugene Peterson is a pastor who wrote a beautiful translation of the Bible called The Message, and this is how he interpreted Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says, we've been given a glimpse of the real thing, our true home, our resurrection bodies. The Spirit of God whets our appetite by giving us a taste of what's ahead. You know, the bakery across the street from me, sometimes I go and they'll have a little basket next to the kiss with a new type of bread to try, like with figs in it or nuts in it or some chocolate stuff. And they have little pieces of that for you to try. Because what happens is you try it and you're like, back up the, back it up because i got to add something else to my order. It gives you just a taste of what's to come. The Spirit of God whets our appetite by giving us a taste of what's ahead. He puts a little of heaven in our hearts so that we'll never settle for less. That's why we live with such good cheer. You won't see us drooping our heads or dragging our feet. Cramped conditions here don't get us down. All the studio apartment people said, Amen. They only remind us of the spacious living conditions ahead. It's what we trust in, but don't see yet, that keeps us going. It's what we trust in, but don't yet see, that keeps us going. Do you suppose a few ruts in the road or rocks in the path are going to stop us? When the time comes, we'll be plenty ready to exchange exile for homecoming. It's what we trust in but don't yet see that keeps us going. Would you stand with me this morning? Hey, this is Kelly, lead pastor of the Bridge International Church. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from the Bridge. If you'd like more information about the Bridge, or if you'd like to get in touch with us, visit us at thebridgeparis.com.